Aqua Lads and Aqua Lasses, the circle is now complete. Hey everybody, welcome back to Stream Fighter 2 with our continuing but unfortunately concluding coverage of Disney Plus's Obi-Wan Kenobi. And yes, I decided to say it like Darth Vader for some reason. I'm not sure why. Whoa, folks, I'll tell you what, I am just having a ball here. Uh, but I am definitely, you know, because this episode was just absolutely fucking awesome. Spoiler alert. Um, but I am so saddened by the fact that this will be the last time we're talking about a new episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I know the skeptics, or perhaps the fans out there, might say, well, hey, what about season two? And, oh, you know what, guys? I, can we, I'm kind of on team, let's leave well enough alone. This was so good. And it sets up, how shall I say this? You know what, Let, let's talk about what we're going to do here in the Aqua Cave today for the finale of Obi-Wan Kenobi. So we're going to try to do something a little bit different, okay? Now, I, I've gone back and I've listened to the episodes of Stream Fighter, the covered episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and while I stand behind them and think that they were a lot of fun and I hope you enjoyed listening to them, you know, I don't, I don't want to just recap the beats of the episode, especially with that last episode. I really, really had to dive deep into literally what was happening on the screen because I wanted to include my interpretation of the flashbacks and, and stuff like that and the framing devices. And so I really, I mean, that was a long episode. I think it was almost like 80 minutes or something like that, which, hey, if you're digging it, I'll talk Star Wars all day. But I also don't want to just make you relive the episode you just watched. I just kind of wanted to talk about it and have a discussion. And let's not kid ourselves. I, I've got this is not something I'm saying to indicate that Obi-Wan Kenobi Episode 6 or Part 6 was problematic, because I don't think it was. But it's really just two large story threads reaching their conclusion. And to jump back and forth between story beats and being like, this is when Roken says, the motivators are broken, and then Obi-Wan takes a dump to prepare for the final battle. Like, that's silly. I don't really want to do that. But what I want to talk about are the characters that seem to have emerged from Obi-Wan Kenobi, either being altered by this miniseries, uh, that are new because of this miniseries, and sort of track their trajectory of where they've landed, uh, what they could, you know, give to Star Wars moving forward. And for those characters that we already knew, how did this change and reshape the way that we look and think about them? And by doing so, we will actually through osmosis, cover the events of Obi-Wan Kenobi Part 6. Now, I've decided to, you know, I've got my list here prepared of all the different characters, and I'm going to sort of go through them in a way that's organic. Um, I'm going to, you know, we'll talk about some of the minor rebellion-type characters, some of the minor empire characters, and then we'll pivot to your major characters and what have you. But I, I've set it up this way because I'm going to try to avoid talking about other characters when I talk about the characters that I'm currently referencing. And the best way I can sum this up is that if I was talking about, like, Toy Story, I don't know why, this probably because that Zerg, or not the Zerg, that Buzz Lightyear movie just came out, uh, which I didn't see. I, I have no interest in, and if you do, I love it. That's great. Go to the theater. Take Go to the theater, for God's sakes. Go to a movie theater. Keep movie theaters alive, okay? Go see something you have fun with and enjoy. It's just not my cup of tea. But my example is, you know, if Buzz Lightyear 
and Woody get into a battle in Episode 6 and Buzz Lightyear kills Woody, it wouldn't do me much good to talk about Buzz Lightyear first, because then I'm really just also talking about Woody, because it seems like those two characters would be intertwined based on how their conclusion uh, played out. So that's why I've decided to go through the list this way. Plus, I think it's sort of organic, you know, putting these new characters on the side of light or good or evil and dark, because when it really comes down to it, Star Wars is pretty cut and dry, but maybe that's why we love it. There are shades of gray, as Vince McMahon would say. Probably shouldn't mention Vince McMahon on a non-wrestling podcast. He's not exactly public hero number one these days. But anywho... Let's move on to Obi-Wan Kenobi. And of course, spoilers, obviously. But I guess I'd feel remiss if I didn't mention spoilers for anything Star Wars related at this point. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, I, I know for a fact I'm going to talk about some comics here and there, blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, enter at your own risk. But I will, you know, I will try not to do anything crazy. I'm not going to, like, casually mention that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Oh. No, that's a, that's a shitty joke. Even I want to punch myself for that one. All right, here we go. So let's talk about the Rebellion. And I know they're not the Rebellion. Um, they don't have like a... I mean, I guess you call them the Path or what have you. But I want to encompass anyone that was basically a good guy or a good character that was a more minor character, okay? They may be credited in the starring list, okay? That doesn't make them minor. But, you know, their contributions to the overall narrative... Um, where they end up, or yeah, let's just go through it, and I think it'll make sense. So let's start with Tala. Now, we talked a lot about Tala in the last episode, and obviously, uh, she died, so there's nothing to add based on anything that happened in episode 6, or part 6. I gotta get this part versus episode thing clear. Because when I say episode 6, or if I was listening to the show, and someone said episode 6, I'm thinking, are we talking about Return of the Jedi all of a sudden? So, Part 6 is what they called it on Obi-Wan. So, in Part 6, she doesn't appear. Okay? She's gone. But I do really appreciate the fact that we saw a character make the supreme sacrifice. And I do appreciate what Tala adds to the overall Star Wars mythology. And the fact that she does this without mucking up any continuity or anything like that. Because... You know, when it comes to Star Wars, I'm not a massive continuity stickler when it comes to non-theatrical released things, but I consider this, as well as Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett, even though this is much better than those shows, and no disrespect to them, it just is, but I consider this theatrical. Uh, you know, I you could say live action, I guess, if you really wanted to simplify it even further, but, you know, if... If Obi-Wan Kenobi does something that contradicts a comic, well, I'm sorry, but live-action continuity um, overwrites all. That's the way that it is. That's the... I don't want to disrespect anyone out there that wrote a comic or contributed anything to that ongoing legacy, but let's not kid ourselves. If, if, If a show decides to contradict something, I mean, it's comics that's got to fix it, right? I'm not. They're not worried about fixing it in live action because you're just going to fucking confuse your audience and muddy the waters even more. So I love that Talus Holster finds a home. I love that it inspired Princess Leia, and that's from Part Five. You know, I, I just love that this character has an influence, and she sort of woke Obi Wan Kenobi, or she woke Ben Kenobi up to turn him back into Obi Wan Kenobi. She helped him understand that. 
you know, even though she's not like, Ben, you know what, ten years ago you fucking threw in the towel and everything's gone to even worse shit since then, and you need to wake up and deal with it. But that is kind of what she did. Of course, she doesn't know things like we do, but that character... You know, and then you could be like, well, are you just putting her in the fridge for the old women in refrigerators gag? Which I don't want to mock, because that's a real thing, and it's a real problem, and what have you. But I think this character making the sacrifice was extremely organic. You know, if anything, like, if you if you want to say they nuked her, they nuked her fridge, or that's, that's Indiana Jones. There's too many goddamn fridge metaphors in popular culture, alright? Nuking the fridge is when you ruin a franchise like Indiana Jones. Women in refrigerators is when you kill a female character simply to motivate a male character. Stemming from a very famous issue of Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn, I believe it is, when Kyle Rayner first gets Hal Jordan's power ring. Um, But that's a podcast for another time. So, I like that Tala primarily inspires Princess Leia in death. In life... She inspires Obi-Wan Ken- or Ben Kenobi to become Obi-Wan Kenobi. And that's where I'm going to put the final stamp on Tala. Let's talk about Roken. Kind of a thankless job for O'Shea Jackson Jr. Um, I- I'm not in love with the performance, okay? But I'm convinced, after having watched these episodes a couple of times, that that's a side effect of this character having to exist as opposed to needing to exist. So, the, what I mean by that is the path, the rebellion, whatever you want to call it, there has to be a person in charge, right? Okay. And that character is Roken. And we do get some brief backstory, and it, it's solid. It's, it lays a foundation there. But this show did not exist. It existed to do other things. Now, creating Roken and getting Roken out there into the mythology is a great bonus. And I am absolutely positive that this character will live on in books, comics. Maybe they'll appear in Andor. I actually think that's a great organic place for them to show up again. And, you know, we can sort of learn what the character's been up to and how they're solidifying the rebellion from sort of an underground movement into an actual thing that can an actual group that can participate in an ongoing armed conflict with the empire i think that's great i'd love to see roken hang out with mon mothma and bail organa and cassian andor let's do it i'm all for it um and so i think that's the because you know the way this episode plans out you know obi-wan tells roken uh, as they part ways probably for the for the last time keep doing what you're doing people you know, you're a natural leader, and people need someone to, you know, get them going, to motivate them. And, you know, there has to be someone that makes the decisions and uh, inspires people. You know, and I think that's it's perfect. It's a fantastic character to invent. This just, you know, this miniseries isn't where that character's full potential is going to be reached. And that's totally okay. You know, um... So many random characters pop in and out of Star Wars all the time. And they might have a huge part to play in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Just just, just trying to think of a random character that had a bit... Uh, uh, the cloners from Kamino, they need to exist! But, you know, they don't really have a need to appear in any of the other eight episodes of Star Wars. Attack of the Clones is their moment. I don't think this is Roken's moment. It's just his introduction. And that's totally cool. I'm excited to see moving forward. Because I love the idea of someone uh, in this position. An early rebellion leader. 
let's talk about Bale Organa. Nothing game-changing here, but I'm super glad that Jimmy Smith's got to come back and keep contributing to the Star Wars legacy. You know, it was exciting when he was announced as part of Attack of the Clones and, you know, that he would be coming back in Revenge of the Sith. And what's unfortunate is that Episode 3, I, I love, but it was it definitely had a rushed feel. You know, I'm sort of part of the uh, fandom out there that believes that maybe we shouldn't have started so young in Episode 1 with Anakin, um, but they did, and, and this is not a bitch session about that. But because of that, because of all those choices that were made, Episode 3 had a lot of ground to cover and only a two-hour and some-odd-minute runtime to do it. So, Bail Organa felt like he always got the short end of the stick. And what's crazy is that that, that strange, like, short end of the stick feeling continues to, like, sort of feel relevant even in this show and, like, his brief appearance in Rogue One. It's sort of like, hey, there's Bail Organa, so this is a real Star Wars thing. Don't worry, folks. Bail Organa's here. It's it's canon. Um, But, hey, he's here. We get to see him on Alderaan. We get to see his characters uh, being a good dad. For Leia, and I think that's important, and it's something that there's not, you know, obviously, uh, you never get to see Carrie Fisher and Bail Organ and uh, Jimmy Smith together because it's not fucking possible. Uh, you know, she's too old when he's cast as Bail Organa, so it, it's not happening. So I don't know. I'm just glad to see him back. I'm glad he gets to continue to contribute. Um, we get to see him interact with Obi Wan one more time. You get a big hug. Uh, we can never possibly repay you, etc., etc. Now all we need is for someone to talk George Lucas out of retirement so we can have him add some on-the-ground coverage to when the Death Star attacks Alderaan. I mean, what's, why can't we do that? I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of the special editions because it's not like somebody went back and did this. I mean, George Lucas himself did it. It's his art. I mean... You know, we don't. Now, now I'm gonna. Now I'm starting a greater philosophical discussion because I was gonna say we don't own it, and then someone's gonna say, "Well, George doesn't own it." Once you put it out there, we own it as a society, and it's like, okay, like I, I get it. Like I'm, but you know, there are a few special digit changes that still boggle my mind. Uh, mainly McClunky, but whatever. I just, I, why not go back and. You know, as soon as that laser hits Alderaan, cut to Alderaan and see, you know, Bail Organa on his little balcony watching the laser penetrate into Alderaan and maybe closing his eyes or, you know, something like that. Uh, You know, there's so much you could do to add cohesion to Episode 4 and the prequels and yada, yada, yada. Why not cut to Coruscant and see Darth Sidious... Uh, shut down the Senate. I guess it's not necessary. Now we're on a whole other topic for a whole other podcast, all from Bail Organa. But hey, I could go for a 10-second insert shot of Alderaan coverage and then zoom in on Bail on the balcony, watching the laser penetrate the surface, and then cut back to space and see the shockwave explosion, and then cut to Leia. And like, I don't know. It is what it is. Lola! Another lovely addition to the droid family. And guess what, guys? She's 8 trillion percent cooler than Dio. Oh, God. Why add Dio when you already have BB-8? Like, 
He's that trilogy's R2-D2. You don't need a second one. Fuck. I hate you, Dio. But I, here's the thing. Here's what is cool about Lola. I love Leia's got a droid companion. Uh, you know, like Luke built C-3PO. Uh, you know, all that jazz. You could, you could do all that stuff with it, too. But I love the idea that much like R2-D2, Lola is the only witness to the Battle of the Heroes version 2 <laughs> which we'll get there I love it George loves the idea that the droids are sort of not only the bumbling sidekicks if you're talking about C-3PO uh, they get through somehow this massive conflict unscathed but R2-D2 sort of like your silent protagonist narrator he knows it all he's seen it all he was there but that information can't be conveyed to the rest of us He's a droid. He communicates differently. Who would believe it? <laughs> if someone out there spoke beep boop beep and he runs up like, hey, holy shit, have I got a story for you? Like, okay. So I just love the idea that Lola's there with Obi-Wan. Uh, she's on the ship, I think. So I'm, but you know, I'm presuming she could float around and watch Battle of the Heroes Volume 2. And I love it. I don't, you know, I know that's not confirmed in quotation marks. I'm doing the finger quotes thing, but. You know, she's a cute addition. She's a merchandising addition. Let's be honest and frank about it. But I love that the individuals that created the show went that extra mile to make it feasible. You know, because we don't cut to, like, R2 on Mustafar, like, watching Obi-Wan and Anakin fight. But he's there. I'm assuming he can see it. And I'm doing the same thing with Lola. Someone witnessed the Battle of the Heroes. But, unfortunately, no one can tell the tale. And I know I've waxed philosophical on that, but it really fucking hit me, and I loved it. I really, really did. Let's talk about Haja. Star Wars loves a good guy that's not exactly on the level. And, you know, I think that's understandable. And, guys, let's not kid ourselves. Haja is no Lando Calrissian, okay? But he's a fun addition to the canon. And, most importantly, he kept his word. You know, I believe him when he said he wanted to get that... Uh, Jedi Force-sensitive kid and his mom off-planet. Like, I do believe that Haja wanted to do that because it was the right thing to do. I also believe that Haja got to make a buck. Haja got to get paid, okay? And I think that's a real fucking relatable sort of thing. You want to do the right thing, you got to do for you and yours as well. Alright? Um, and yeah, he gets Leia home. We don't see him on Alderaan, but hey, it's inferred that he did it. And, uh, you know, he's a fun guest star. You know, and I'm sure Camille is is just ecstatic that he got to be a part of Star Wars. You know, and, and most importantly, it doesn't do a damn thing to harm canon or mess with any sort of existing stories or anything like that. If nothing else, who's to say that him and Roken didn't hang out over the years, and maybe Haja was able to get into places and learn information that Roken couldn't. Maybe Haja's just willing to play that shady card a little bit more. I'm making stuff up, but that's what we did for decades, right? We just made shit up because we didn't have uh, Star Wars expanded canon to dive into. And sure, the show just ended today, but here we are, at least here I am, already making up fun adventures that we could have with Haja, and I think that's a positive contribution to Star Wars, and I'm appreciative of that. And finally, last but certainly not least, Wade. May he rest in pieces. I'm still not sure why everybody was so upset that Wade didn't make it. 
And I don't even think I mentioned it in that episode uh, when they uh, infiltrated the Fortress Inquisitorius during Operation Metal Gear. But Wade didn't make it. <laughs> and they sure were broken up about it. I don't, I don't want to get into a laughing or giggling fit. I'm not as broken up about Wade, but I'd feel heartbroken if I didn't mention his positive additions to the Star Wars mythology. Now we shall pivot to the dark side of the Force and talk about some minor bad guys. And, as you could tell from the lackluster, I don't know, impression, let's start with Darth Sidious. Man, you know what, guys? I'm just glad to see Ian McDiarmid back in Star Wars that isn't Episode Nine. And you know what? It's not just a throwaway. I mean, you could say it's a throwaway because it's very short. And dude could have clearly filmed it in his backyard. Which I say jokingly, I'm not. I don't think that that's what happened. Okay. But here's what's important. Darth Sidious is in one scene, and it's the last scene that Darth Vader appears in as well. And what does he do? He sets Vader in line and fucking, you know, just brings him back in. Like, look here, Duke, dude. <laughs> I was going to call him douche, but I went with dude. Like, look here, fucker. I'm still in charge, and you. I want to hear you say I'm sure in charge. My goals are the important ones. My directions are what matter. My desires dictate what we do. Capiche? Invaders like capiche. <laughs> and then you know, Sidious makes him kiss the ring one last time on camera. Uh, you know, presuming that you know they don't interact again in some sort of live action show. But it really sets the Vader character back on track because this miniseries is a huge detour. I have to imagine for the Darth Vader character. You know, comics, books. He's out there doing what needs to be done being the enforcer for the Empire, but he really goes on a personal journey in this miniseries and gets off task. You know what I mean? And I, and and to put a real-world spin on it, Sidious is his boss, and Vader's like the employee. So you might be doing something that's quote-unquote good for your company, but if it's not what your boss wants, they're going to stop by and be like, hey, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but let's get back on track. There's a huge project that needs to be completed, and you're the one that's supposed to be doing it. And that's what Sidious does, and that's why he's here. And uh, thanks, Ian, for coming back for the fans and for the money. (laughs) You know, I I say that. I I don't care. Pay the man. Fucking pay him. Um, There's nothing wrong with getting paid. All right? Let's talk about the fifth brother. Well... We referenced Operation Metal Gear earlier, and the fifth brother pretty much just disappeared after Operation Metal Gear. I'm kind of whatever about it. I have no problems with the performance, alright? But honestly, and this show kind of proved it to me, because I'm not a Star Wars Rebels guy. I really honestly haven't even seen that much Clone Wars, okay? I have nothing against it, it's just never been something I grabbed onto. So... This is kind of my first experience with the Inquisitors. I've not played Fallen Order. And, I don't know. I kind of think the Inquisitors as a concept sort of muddy the waters and and sort of take something away from the speciality of Jedi and Sith. And, I don't know. Maybe I'm just... Maybe I don't have a personal enough attachment to it, and that's the problem. I've got no issues with the fifth brother. He's here. 
he says things to come into conflict with Reva, and then he sort of disappears when he's no longer needed, so I don't really know what else to say. The Grand Inquisitor. So when Obi-Wan started, I immediately went back and read uh, some of the, I think maybe like the first 20 or so issues of the Darth Vader comic, and not the modern Darth Vader comic when he teams up with Padme's Handmaiden, which I did really like. I was informed that reading the first uh, volume of Darth Vader would be very informing to the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. And, uh, you know, I, I think I got as far as to where the Grand Inquisitor, like, start, got into a fight with Jocasta New, I think that's her name, the uh, Jedi Librarian. Um, and, you know, it was fine, but there's that character is not the great... The Grand Inquisitor we're seeing in Obi-Wan Kenobi is just a caricature of anything that character was. And I don't say car- caricature as a damning thing or a thing to make fun of or say the performance is bad or whatever. It's just there's not enough time and there's no need to get into what the Grand Inquisitor or who the Grand Inquisitor actually is slash was. So they're simply here because they quote-unquote kind of have to be if you want to stay in line with Star Wars canon. I guess the big contribution is, of course, the, the, the faking out of Reva or the manipulation that after she turns on him, uh, he comes back and fucks with her mentally. Um, I also assume he's the guy that told on Darth Vader to Darth Sidious after uh, the Battle of the Heroes Volume 2 when Vader decides, fuck it, these four sensitive people can go on their little fucking trip. I'll find them later. I'm going after Obi-Wan. Because... Even in the comics, I got the impression that uh, they were not besties, that being the Grand Inquisitor and Darth Vader. So, I suppose it makes sense that he would be the one to rat out Darth Vader to Darth Sidious. And if that's their ultimate contribution, that's their ultimate contribution. It doesn't mess with anything, and it's perfectly fine. It's just one of those things that if people were excited to see the Grand Inquisitor and were wondering what new things they would learn and what wrinkles they would add to his character? Uh, the answer is none. And that's okay, because I'd much rather have Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader be in the spotlight as opposed to the fucking Grand Inquisitor. And now, to be honest with you, there are not a ton of characters left. And we're moving on to the, the main event, if you will, the final four. Uh, which I'm sure everybody can do the math at home and figure out who they are. But I've got a special honorable mention. I wanted them to be packaged with the main characters because, damn it, they are a their legacy. And I really enjoy sort of the reframing we get here. So I might as well just start talking about it. It's Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru, and to a lesser extent, Luke. But Luke is kind of inconsequential in terms of a character. Uh, in terms of like what we learn or things that change or how our perspective is changed about that character. But what a reframing for Owen and Baru. I mean, forever, these two just sort of existed as like bare-bones tropes, like the easiest of stereotypes to latch on to. You've got your cranky farmer uncle who's got no use for a protocol droid and the quiet housewife. 
Oh, Owen, he's just like his father. Finish your chores, Luke. I have some blue milk. And what the fuck is that, like, cabbage potato machine that she's messing with uh, when Uncle Owen finds out that Luke has gone on with his friends when he's out searching for R2? You know the machine. It goes, and it looks like she's throwing, like, potatoes into some sort of auto boiler or something. It looks like something from the set of 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I mean that with utmost respect. Anywho, so so, so these two characters can still be these things. And I gotta be honest with you, uh, who was the cab driver guy? Frick, you know, he was a good old farmer, uh, <laughs> sort of a caricature of an extreme right sort of person. And I'm not saying that that's this, but what I am saying is that, you know, Owen's a moisture farmer, and Baru, and this is my girlfriend, Baru, maybe one of the worst lines ever, but at the same time, Baru's just his girlfriend, and then she's just his wife, you know, and it's kind of like, what are you really, though? Well, they're people that really care about their adopted son, or their nephew, however you want to look at it, and they prove it. These characters are willing to die for Luke, Okay. Uncle Owen is the man with the plan, he thinks. But Aunt Beru is indeed the baddest bitch. And I mean that as a compliment. Her desire to want to keep Luke safe, you know, she's got the guns stashed away. She's got the plan, you know, she'll come at nightfall, so let's go ahead and get stationed. I mean, she's she's a mom protecting her child. And I think that's unfortunately a side or something that gets tossed around in episode four without consequence, you know, their execution or their death or whatever you want to call it is not, I mean, it's just, again, killing some characters to motivate Luke. But now, now we understand that motivation. I mean, we always did to a lesser extent, but this puts it right in front of our face. There's no doubt about it. You know, Owen's not just the cranky uncle that puts up with this kid. So he has extra help around the house. I'm sure he is truly grateful to have that extra help around the house. And, you know, he he makes no bones about it. He's not, like, abusing the kid. And he's not, he doesn't have delusions that his life is more than it is. But what his life is, is father to a boy who could be dangerous, could change the fate of everything. And uh, they own that, and they defend it. And I think it's worth talking about. And so, we did. And thank you for reframing the way that we feel about Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. Princess Leia. She's such an interesting character in pop culture. You know, she's kind of ebbed and flowed with society. Um, you know, if, if if we need her to be the princess in the tower, you know, initially, like in the late 70s, early 80s, that's what she is. And then she's the rebel freedom fighter and sort of the spokesperson for, you know, feminine empowerment and i and that's awesome like but at the same time you mix that with the larger than life personality of carrie fisher and the princess leia character sort of like takes on a life of its own and 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 stands out as a as an extremely important character to the star wars mythos you know and the sequel trilogy does give her more to do they're dealing with the limitations of what carrie fisher can perform just putting it out there, not trying to be disrespectful. It just is what it is. And you know what? I love the so-called Mary Poppins moment. 
I'm digging the fact that Leia is this strong with the Force, as she would be if she learned to become in tune with it, but that's not the important part. We get all that. But what we've never gotten is a version of Princess Leia that can compete with Luke Skywalker in terms of what the character is allowed to do and what we're allowed to learn about that character. There's only so much time. We, like I said in our first episode, like we understand wholeheartedly what Luke's journey is. He's been on Tatooine his entire life. He's the kid. He just wants to get away and see what see what he can do. You know, can I make it out in the big bad galaxy? It just so happens he's got a crazy destiny attached to him. Well, Leia's the same thing. But we get to see what happens in Leia's life that makes her decide to go into service, that makes her decide to fight back against corruption. Um, you know, we've always known that she is the daughter of Darth Vader and the Mighty Thor, all right? Uh, we know this as we see her chasing Boba Fett through Cloud City trying to rescue Han Solo. But now we really, really see that she is indeed Anakin Skywalker and Padme Amidala's daughter. And that is a gift that this show gives us. And the actress is completely charming. She's the exact opposite of Jake Lloyd in terms of if you believe Jake Lloyd's acting is, like, groan-inducing. It's not. It comes across as very much a 10-year-old kid. And her not having to take that backseat anymore is a gift. Like I said, you know, we can watch four, five, six, seven, eight, nine to a lesser extent, if you can stand to watch nine, and understand that we know who this character is. We saw her when she was young. We saw her when she became a freedom fighter. We saw her evolve into a general and a politician and all that fun stuff. And if this show does nothing else, obviously we've got three more characters to talk about. One's a new character and the two big guns. All right? And let me tell you, folks, they all deliver something, especially the two big guns here in the last episode. But imagine a world where those two big guns didn't deliver what they do. I think that this show giving us that scene between Obi-Wan and Leia on the landing platform when he gives her information about her parents and she is at peace. Uh, even though she can't learn more, that's enough. It's just... And they play that Princess Leia theme. It is an absolute, perfect, uh, icing on the cake moment for that character. And I would have, you know, coming into this thing, I would have never in a million years thought that Leia would have been the catalyst for bringing Ben Kenobi out of hiding. But here we are. We have it at our disposal. And it just goes to sort of really making this whole six-episode limited series, the perfect bridge between three and four. You know, I said it earlier, three had so much to do. It could have never taken the time to do this. So what this series gives us is time to take a breath and really learn about, you know, the Skywalker child that we knew about, but we didn't really know about. It always had to be informed from something that we learned off screen. Now we get to see it on screen. She is little Anakin. The only thing she's missing is a pod racer. I mean, you know, to a certain extent. And I think that's good writing. Whether or not you think that the Anakin Skywalker child character was written well, they've at least adapted the best parts of that and uh, incorporated it into Leia. 
We see young Luke as well, but, you know, this is not Luke's show, and that's good. We didn't need any more of that. We've got plenty of it. So, I don't know. I'm just glad that that's what we got from this show. Reva. In the end, Reva was sort of like our original character that kickstarts everything. Um, she is the reason that Obi-Wan and Vader uh, got on a roller coaster and a collision course towards one another. But she is more than a plot device, and, and you know, she is a catalyst, but she also exists to tell a very unique story within Star Wars. She was a youngling that was left for dead by hooded Darth Vader. And she works her way through the Imperial War Machine on a mission to kill Anakin Skywalker. I mean, that's a whole show right there. In the end, she finds minor redemption. You know, um, she does give us a lot to love and look back upon fondly along the way. Those haunting flashbacks of Order 66 from the first-person perspective of Hooded Vader with Hayden Christensen getting to re-perform the character. Oof, that, that hits me. Um, it's haunting, and it adds so much. If Reva doesn't exist, we don't get any of that. It's also kind of Sewell. Kinda, I almost said kind of Sewell. Oh, well. It's kind of cool to see a character that's a Jedi that threw it all away. You know, I know we have Ahsoka and animation, and they always say that Qui-Gon was a, a rebel and a rogue and always was sort of going against the Order of the Council, but that's all inferred, and we don't really get to see what that would have looked like had he broken away completely. And, of course, Dooku breaks away, but, uh, you know, that's for Sidious means. <laughs> I'll see myself out. But Reva is forced into this life. And, you know, like Obi-Wan, like Anakin Skywalker, tries to find a way to reconcile their past with their present. And it's scary at points. You know, she battles Vader to what should have been her death. You know, like it should have been her death, like not saying like they did the wrong thing with writing. I'm just saying that, you know, hypothetically, you go against Vader, you don't come back. You know, and at the end, she she pivots this quest and thirst for vengeance to kill a child. Which is, I I say ridiculous from her perspective, not ridiculous from a writing perspective. What I'm saying is, is that the character completely betrays their innermost motivations by going to hunt a child, which is how they find redemption and, and they have a revelation that this is the craziest shit I've ever done in my life. The shit that I'm trying to do right now is crazier than joining the Imperial War Machine to kill one man. And her attempted murder of Luke rhymes with her own experiences back in the Jedi Temple. And you listen to any interview with George Lucas, and that's what he loves to talk about. It rhymes. Here, see, it, it all rhymes together, the story of Luke and the... the the little fancy guy at the Senate. Hey, Steven. <laughs> George Lucas talking to Steven Spielberg. You see that sexy guy standing out front of the Mon Calamari Opera on Coruscant? That's me, Steven. Look at that son of a bitch. I bet he's got a huge cock, Steven. <laughs> George Lucas talking to Steven Spielberg about the character he plays in Star Wars Episode Three. But, you know, Reva, I hope she goes down as a pop, as a popular character, and has a good place in the fandom. Um, I also hope that this character is retired. Now, what do you mean by that? 
I think the only thing that makes any sort of narrative sense is that if we want to get more adventures of this character, we do it prequel style. Her journey, what she did before this limited series. Because how could she possibly raise arms again after this? She's the type of character that should... She she honestly should take on Ben Kenobi's role. She should, like, be a hermit somewhere and, I don't know, run an orphanage and defend it from bandits or something, you know? And when she's, you know, she she goes to an orphanage and she runs it until she's 60 and then all of a sudden some bandits come and, oh, it's time to pull out the old lightsaber. It sounds humorous, but it's a trope that exists. And I don't know. Maybe they could do something like that. But I just don't want to see... I feel like the character has gone on their journey and that's that. It's okay to just have your story end. Now, if they want to continue it, I'm here for it. Badass character. But I just hope that, you know, it just seems to make sense that after all of this, not only being wanted by the Imperials and not being able to come to terms with the fact that you have slaughtered a shit ton of people on your way up the food chain, I mean, you got to kind of give it all up and just do something quote-unquote holy for the rest of your life, right? Speaking of doing something holy, let's get to the main event. The big man, if you will. Obi-Wan Kenobi, that's right. He's the title character, but he can't get top billing in this podcast, though. So it's a six-episode series. Each episode gave us a different version of Obi-Wan that we had either were familiar with in vague ways or inferred mentally uh, throughout this entire Star Wars life cycle. Because we've never had a viewpoint of Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan from three to four. So we get, and there's six episodes... 9-to-5 Hermit, Reluctant Rescuer, Victim, Episode 3 is so good, (laughs) Reluctant Hero, Operation Metal Gear Fortress Inquisitaris, General, in Episode 5, making those strategic maneuvers to get everybody to safety for the greater good, and then in Episode 6, we see a Master Jedi empowered by a new hope. Ben may have been the disguise at first, but it became the truth. Obi-Wan then came face-to-face with his failure, and this show made sure that the character was held accountable for the failures of the Jedi. And on his new missions, he found a new purpose, but he got closure with the old, uh, the old ways, the old missions, the old failures, the old successes as well. He tells Owen at the end, right before he meets Luke for the very first time, and says, Hello there! Of course, as we all... We all expected and hoped he would. The future will take care of itself. Obi-Wan comes out of retirement and inadvertently and unexpectedly, but positively, sets the galaxy in motion to start resisting the Empire full force. He has the absolute most beautiful moment with Leia, as we discussed. And I think in the end, he gives Luke a small piece of hope or happiness in this barren, hopeless wasteland world that he has to inhabit until he can claim his birthright. He clears his conscience, but not in a way that absolves him of his failure. And it doesn't just make everything magically right, but he is able to close the book on a horrible memory, a horrible chapter in his life that, you know, has controlled his existence and kept him from seeing the true potential that was there. And now he's at peace... And he will learn to become one with the Force from Master Qui-Gon Jinn, who's back! Yay! He has a very particular... Everybody else in the world has done the Qui-Gon Jinn has a very particular set of skills joke. So allow me to give you mine. 
Obi-Wan, I have a very particular set of skills. I will teach you how to die, but yet live. Now, your life will be taken. And as it's taken, I need you to shout everything you see. I'm going to stop now because I, I don't have anything more to go on that one. Um, but yeah, he's going to become one with the Force at some point. But more importantly, I love, love, love how Master Qui-Gon appears to him when Obi-Wan can finally see him. Now, I know I'm just restating the obvious, but it's like something happens to you and it shapes you or changes you. And even in your day-to-day life, it's back there and it's a part of you no matter what. You you live your day-to-day existence and you find moments of contempt or moments of respite. Um, moments where you're just sort of existing, but it's always back there. And if somehow it can get lifted, if you can get past it, if you can stop letting it shape your worldview, then a weight's been lifted off you. You hear people say it all the time. You know, they defeat something in their life that was keeping them down, or, you know, maybe uh, a fine closure with someone, or it's just whatever it is, okay? I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just going from head here. You know, people say it feels like a weight was lifted off their shoulders, and it was for him. And now, he can he's cut those ties, and he can see with the Force. And Qui-Gon's here to teach him however it is you... I, I've got to think it's got to have something to do with sort of like letting... Leaving everything behind and will, being willing to give yourself to the Force, which means you probably have to be a complete piece. Which is probably why Yoda has to spend so many years in exile, because having lived a life as long as he has, it's definitely going to take him a long time to find peace. And Obi-Wan finds peace, well, a little bit of it anyway, in this final confrontation in Part 6 with a young Jedi named Darth Vader, who betrayed and murdered your father. It's probably not the right exact quote, but oh boy. Oh. Yeah. We're going to talk about Darth Vader or Anakin Skywalker starting now. If anyone has listened to all of these, you know I started with sort of a wish list or things that I were was hoping was going to occur. Number one of which being some sort of Hayden Christensen, Darth Vader voice scenario. And, uh, I'm leading with that because I think it's my favorite thing to come out of this uh, last episode and how it wraps up everything with Vader. Um, but yeah, there's so much to this. This last episode gives us not only, you know, my wish list sort of completed, it gives us a fantastically choreographed fight scene, okay? And when I say it's choreographed, I I mean not only from like a real-world choreography standpoint, like film Uh, But what I'm talking about are like emotional beats and finality. And you talk about Vader's actual fighting, though, if you want to get into the choreography of it. It's a really cool hybrid of like his normal one-hand stances, but then when he needs it, he switches over to the two. I don't know. It's pretty cool. There's also all sorts of like flourishes. Uh, Obi-Wan is, you know, absolutely at full like Jedi uh, Clone Wars era power and strength at this point. And Obi-Wan's, you know, doing a lot of cool <laughs> choreography, a lot of flourishes with his saber. And the Darth Vader, the suited Darth Vader, finally has to keep up with an opponent like that. And it's just 
cool. I mean, it it mirrors completely what we saw when they were on Coruscant and allows us to sort of reconcile in our heads that we're seeing Hayden Christensen, and it doesn't matter that it's him. It's just that it's the guy that played him and the guy that moved like him and the guy that fought like him. You know, I mean, I, I have nothing against Hayden Christensen. I've talked a lot of praise, but, and I don't mean this to disparage the person, but if it was someone named... Ernest P. Whirl, that was the actor that played them, I'd be having the same conversation about that person and that performance. So it's like, I'm not trying to overindulge in it, but it's just, it connects it in my brain. And honestly, that's, that means a lot to me. It's probably why I, you know, hold on to it and get so much out of it. I will cop to that. But it's the absolute ultimate version of Vader. You know, and I'm not talking about the, the movements or the powers. It is, again, it's a, it's, it's a fully formed, living, breathing bridge between all the eras of Star Wars live action, in my opinion. You know, he fights like the Anakin that we know from the prequels. And we can finally reconcile all of that with our brains, and it's pretty cool. And, you know, it's, it's only going to get better if Hayden Christensen comes back to do like a Force Ghost and Ahsoka. So that that's pretty fucking cool too. If he does that, I'm probably going to have to watch The Clone Wars so I get the emotional payoffs in that show. But good lord, that is a lot of television programming to consume. All right? Now, <laughs> this, that isn't to say that it's not all serious this. We do get some fun in games. For example, Darth Vader gets a massive power-up with flourishes and his saber techniques and his quickness for a little bit. But he also gets a goddamn Street Fighter special move with the ground pound. And it is stupendous. And I loved every second of it. And if you were suddenly woken up in your neighborhood at like 4.18 in the morning, it wasn't your alarm going off early. It was the sound of every nerd in your neighborhood yelling, He has the high ground! Because, you know... Vader gets the high ground and I love that they restrained from having him yell it because I think that would have been too much for the James Earl Jones vocal processing software but that's you know and and I say that lovingly but I just it might have been a little too much but he leaves Obi-Wan for dead and he gets in a fantastic final taunt by calling him master to shame him with his title which will rhyme here in just a moment. Now, Obi-Wan, we talked about him in his segment. You know, he's under the rocks. He finds the hope through the twins to to keep moving forward for the future. Um, And he just goes into overdrive power mode. It's really fucking cool. He throws the rocks at him. I mean, you've seen it by now. Um, It's just absolutely fucking fantastic. I will say, though, a little shade is thrown in this sequence because I did teach, teach, or teach, good Lord, I said it six times, I caught. I caught Obi-Wan stealing Anakin's finishing maneuver from the last episode. And that is a pretty ballsy move. And it takes two SmackDown power icons. Uh, But clearly Obi-Wan had a few to spare. And then the saddest shit I have ever seen happens. And I am not exaggerating when I tell you that I was brought to weepiness by some of this. Okay, Obi-Wan goes for the control panel. What a dick move. But in all seriousness, like, this is, this leads to the absolute catharsis that prequel fans need, in my opinion. And also really cool stuff, you know, but I'm just, I'm looking at it kind of from a real world implication as to what it gives me. After all, that's kind of what this podcast series was about, as well as a review. But Vader's breathing apparatus starts to malfunction, and 
you know, he's still trying to fight, and the hissing comes over the... <gasps> I, I can't do a good impression of the hissing. If I do, I'll probably cough in your ear for like six hours. Um, but it's it's sad. It's sad to watch him fall apart. And he's like a... He's a vile creature. You know, like if you look at this from like a perspective of what he probably looks like if you're not watching a movie. You know, it's he's this horrendously dark, vile thing that comes at you with this red blade and just hacks and slashes, but he's just flailing and falling apart in front of your eyes. It's got to be strange to experience that as like Obi-Wan, like as it's happening, what that would do to you as a person to see this happen. And you learn that like, he's just a husk, man. Despite this godlike power that he wields, he can't even fucking breathe on his own. He is like a living dead man. And, uh, you know, watching him fall apart was just, I don't know if it was like, it was needed, if that makes sense. Like, it was needed to see. Uh, I think we needed to be reminded of that on the way out of this series. And I think that's, you know, that's a, the power that it gives us as viewers. Uh, that we can choose to move from this to Rogue One or Episode 4 or whatever. It's just, it creates a living, breathing, artistic world in my opinion. But Obi-Wan gets in the big shot and shatters the mask, and we get what's probably the most important moment in the entire show. You know, Obi-Wan apologizes. He says he's sorry for all of it. And then we have, you know, again, Hayden Christensen on screen in the makeup with the broken mask, shattered, you know, split in two, and uh, the voice modulator on his suit is breaking. So we finally get to understand, um, you know, what it must have felt like. And, and I want to, I, the scene accomplishes so much. I, I want to make sure I don't leave anything out. But it it explains, so he says in broken words, meaning it modulates between himself and the Vader voice and the Hayden voice. I'm not your failure, Obi-Wan. You didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did the same way I will destroy you. And, he, it, and what it does is it explains and it didn't need explained, but it does in a fun way if you want to go for it. Obi-Wan's perspective and point of view and the story that he kills, kills that he tells Luke, that you know Darth Vader betrayed and murdered a Jedi named Anakin Skywalker that was your father. It also reaffirms our belief as an audience that Anakin Skywalker is Darth Vader, because we can see Hayden Christensen. A bit obvious and on the nose, but you know it's, it's important, and it, and it does something in your head when you see all this. It's hopefully subconscious because you're enthralled with the movie, but, you know, it allows us to see how truly vile Darth Vader is. And I'm not talking about the burns, I'm not talking about the suit or anything like that, but it's his eyes. And the way that he talks about himself in a crazy sort of third-person type way, like he's the rock, and I, I say that as a joke, but really think about it. Like, he lives... And breathes and believes that 24-7. And his eyes are disgusting. Not because they're burned, but because they're enraged with the Sith stuff. And it's just... Good lord. It's, 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 it's kind of like a monster is wearing Anakin's skin. Like, and I know that sounds ridiculous and goofy, but it really allows you to see the, the horror film monster and archetype that the sort of episode four was to audiences, you get to kind of see maybe what they were feeling at the time. Not because they knew what was there, but because, you know, it was something that was new and frightening and awesome and cool looking and, 
you know, oh, he's such a he's such a terror. You know, I don't know. Like it's just it's sort of our pre the prequel generation's version of that, perhaps, is the best way that I can describe that. And the voice modulation, of course, is absolutely brilliant because not only does it give us a taste of probably well, you know, of, of what was done on set with Hayden Christensen just delivering Vader's lines and using his inflection, but it sort of shows that they took that performance and they just with a Darth Vader voice, like they're fucking Moby, or or a better version of Moby, a more modern version of Moby. Because good lord, uh, I must be old because my frame of reference for was Moby. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, you modulate the performance. And it's just, uh, they only turn certain words into James Earl Jones Vader words. And it's beautiful and brilliant, and it connects the fact that Hayden Christensen plays Darth Vader, uh, allegedly, in the prequels, or the sequels. You get what I'm saying. It reconciles in your brain that when you watch 4, 5, and 6, you are watching that blonde-headed dude that you watched in 1, 2, and 3. Whether you like it or not, whether you hate it, whether the prequels are your favorite, whether episode 9 is your favorite, what's wrong with you? But what I'm saying is, is that this is the bridge that we needed for our brains. And it might sound stupid, but you know what? I said it. And, and now that we've got Hayden around the set and we've got the makeup readily available, is this the time to go back and reshoot the end of episode 6 where they take Vader's mask off? And just insert cutaways to Vader, or to Hayden Christensen. Because, you know, and then you could just, when you cut to the back, to see the back of Vader's skull, just, you know, leave that. And then, because they never appear on camera at the same time, the two faces. You know, if if I'm remembering correctly. You don't see Luke and Vader looking at each other at the same time. So they're just cutaway shots. So how easy is it to just cut away to a different version of that shot? I mean... Come on, it's, I mean, it's time, right? We've done what we can to connect these series of films. And 7, 8, and 9 may not be connectable. It's to be sort of crazy to go back and reshoot and add stuff to movies that just came out. Oh, the sequel. You know, it's, this show kind of makes me hate the sequel trilogy more, but that's a different show altogether. But, you know, it's just, it's time for that, maybe. But back to Obi-Wan episode, or fucking part six. Obi-Wan understands now that that Anakin is indeed dead. And it wasn't his fault that it happened. It was never actually his choice. It was never Obi-Wan's to fail or succeed at, in my opinion. Like, they're telling me that this was going to happen. You know, Anakin made the choice. You know, he may have been seduced, but he was pretty easy to convince. Um, And Obi-Wan Kenobi's character no longer feels the need to reconcile or understand what happened. And no longer uh, are they going to waste time dwelling on the shit that happened because, you know, they realize that it was never really in their control to begin with. And that's not to absolve that character of the journey that they've taken or say that the emotions that they felt about the situation and, oh, I failed him. You know, those are valuable and they're important and they still remain. But, uh, you know... As much as Obi-Wan was perhaps a catalyst for some of the reactions that Darth Vader had, the choice was made um, without Obi-Wan failing the person. Uh, there's nothing that could be done about it, I think, in a way. Um, but knowing that his friend is truly dead, he has no more words for him. Because uh, even if he did, there'd be no one to hear them. So he leaves Darth Vader broken, 
shattered, enraged, and he calls him by the name that he fought so hard to desperately obtain. Darth. Or, as I kind of like to think, much how Vader called Obi-Wan Master when he thought he'd just killed him, I like to think that Darth is kind of like uh, mocking him a little bit, or maybe calling him out on being a piece of shit. You know, like, I'm not even going to, because I'm not even going to call you Vader. I'm just going to call you by your bullshit title. I don't know. And, of course, it reconciles only a master of evil, Darth, as if he's throwing shade in that battle as well. When, in reality, they just figured Darth is what they called him because it's just a little script from 76. And they're just making a little movie. But, hey, that happens. Um, You know, I've got on enough about this. I think that the point is across... And that point is that I'm very satisfied with this uh, with this show. I'm very satisfied with the ending. I think they stuck it. I think they stuck the whole show. It's not perfect. Nothing is. But uh, to me, it is the perfect bridge of reconciliation between films that were made decades apart and never intended to be connected. It's connective tissue. Some people can get it from books, comics. Some people don't need it at all. It turns out I did need it, and I needed to see it in live action, and they gave it to me. And, you know, if you pair this with, like, Solo and Rogue One, a Star Wars story, I mean, it's not a perfect thing, but I think it makes kind of a cool, like, interquilogy. Um... You know, I I don't know. I'm sure that someone on the internet will come up with a more clever name for Obi-Wan Kenobi in terms of, like, calling it Star Wars Episode blank Obi-Wan Kenobi or something like that. Like, I don't know if it's, like, three and a half, three and a quarter, 33 and a third, or if it's, like, a cool word, like Star Wars Alpha, Episode Alpha, or something like that, like a video game or something like that. I don't know what it's going to be, um, but I think it stands... You know, alone or combined with Solo and Rogue One, like I said, to make a fun interquilogy, a, a, tr- a trilogy of interquels, which is just a mind-boggling scenario. And at that, I'm going to jump off of here because if I go any deeper into it, they'll probably never let me on camera or on mic again uh, due to assuming that I'm insane. But this show has been a shit ton of fun. It's been a great trek down memory lane. Some just fun entertainment as well. I hope it was fun entertainment for everybody out there. Uh, Let us know what you'd like us to dive into next. I'm not quite sure what is next on the docket for Stream Fighter 2, but I kind of like that, and I think that's the fun nature of doing something like this, is that when something strikes the ear of the collective consciousness of popular culture, uh, I think it'll be time to jump onto it. You know, I like watching shows like uh, The Boys and stuff like that and what have you. Uh, But I'm not, like, passionate about it to a point where I'd want to talk about it, I think, on something like this. Whereas Star Wars really was, uh, like, the perfect passion project for something like this. So, uh, if there's something does come along the pipeline, we'll let you know. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at TheJohnnyC. And uh, why don't you subscribe to The Aqua Cave for more in-depth in detail fun but come back whenever the time is whether it be here now or a galaxy far far away make sure you come back and see us on stream fighter 2